Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is what? Friday, January 12th, 2024, snowy, rainy, wet day in the city of Chicago. The weather reports have somehow all been wrong right now. <laughs> Let's hope that the pollsters uh, who are weighing the opinions of voters in this country is wrong, are as wrong as meteorologists in the city of Chicago when it comes to determining where we're at politically speaking in our country, because almost all the polls uh, have a Donald Trump uh, ahead or in striking distance, utter insanity in the United States of America. Um, we're trying something a little different with this show today. Uh, and uh, if this works, this will become the hottest thing in podcasting history. And if it doesn't work, uh, I will be joining my dear three friends who are on the show with me for years laughing at how foolish we were. Uh, but let's let's give it a, a, the old college try. So I'm going to ask each of my distinguished guests to briefly introduce themselves, uh, and then we'll take it away. We'll start with distinguished guests whose initial is H. Introduce yourself. Okay, Helen Schiller. I don't know what else you want me to say. I'm Helen Schiller. <laughs> She's Helen Schiller, former alderman of the 46th Ward, a legend in Chicago politics, okay? All right, I did it for her. Uh, and she's also the author of a great book called, what's it called, Helen? Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. That's correct. That's exactly what it's called. And if you want to hear Helen talking at great length with me about that, you could just go back and listen to one of our last podcasts uh, that Helen and I did on it. All right. Distinguished guest whose first initial is J. Introduce yourself. Um, that sounds like it's me, uh, Jackie Grimshaw. Uh, long time uh, devotee of Helen Schiller. Um, so uh, even though I'm a South Sider, the Fifth Ward, you know, we've been through some struggles together, some wars, some activism, some things like that. So it's always good to hang out with Helen. 
Yes. And so that's not nearly good enough, Jackie. Jackie Grimshaw is a legendary political strategist of the city of Chicago. And when I first moved to Chicago way back when in 1981, uh, and I was working for Johnny McDermott, John McDermott, may he rest in peace at uh, the Chicago Reporter. He gave me a number. And on that number was a phone number for Jackie Grimshaw. Call her now. <laughs> and, uh, you probably don't remember this, Jackie, because so many young reporters came knocking at your door around that time. But I was one of them. I was like, Jackie Grimshaw, hi, I'm Ben Dressy. You know, can you help me out a little bit? And you start telling me about how, how wrong I was. About everything. <laughs> so it's our first visit to my humble little podcast. Thank you very much, Jackie Grimshaw. My pleasure. All right. Finally, the man whose first initial is B. Introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Brendan Schiller. Uh, I'm sometimes a lawyer, sometimes a consultant, sometimes a poker player. I understand my role here today to be the translator from the older generation to the younger generation. It's very rare I walk into the room anymore and I'm the youngin. Um, I'm the youngin here, even though usually these days I'm the old one in the room. Um, and so I, I am very much looking forward to seeing if this format where we discuss an episode of Chicago political history and try to bring it to a larger audience so that they all recognize what happened if it works because i think it's something that's needed and i'm glad you, you you're doing it man. uh yes and, and everybody knows brennan shows a dear friend of the show comes on all the time breaking down the week's news uh, from his position his viewpoint in las vegas because there's if there's nothing chicago needs is somebody in las vegas to tell us what's going on in chicago all right, so I'm a, uh, Brendan, this, so ladies and gentlemen, uh, the name of this segment is Helen's History, uh, and I named it that, uh, and the idea to do this segment was Brendan's, uh, and the notion is, as Brendan was saying, um, is to use Helen Schiller's vantage point as someone who's been in Chicago for a while and still has all her marbles, that's a very important part, uh, and uh, has, still has a sharp memory to the point where she can disagree with me and call me out for things that happened 30 years ago. Lord knows if either one of us is right. Uh, and, uh, continue arguments into the decades. Um, we thought it would be a good idea to just uh, zero in on certain historical legends, historical figures, historical moments, uh, and uh, discuss them, sort of show their cult and their uh, ongoing relevance, relevance. And so the obvious one uh, that Helen, uh, Brendan, and I agreed to uh, have to do is my personal hero, the man who's on my Mount Rushmore for the greatest Chicagoans of all time. Uh, Jackie, I don't know if I've ever heard it. It's uh, uh, you got to have Leon Dupre. You got to have Harold Washington. You have to have Ralph Metcalf. In my humble opinion, it's my list. And you have to have Karen Lewis. Those are my four on the Mount uh, uh, Rushmore of Chicago great figures. Uh, so, Brendan, um, Jackie Grimshaw, and Helen Schiller know a lot about Harold from knowing the man, working with the man, helping him in his campaign. Why don't you just give an overview for youngsters like yourself uh, why Harold is of enduring significance in this day and age? And then we'll turn it over to the older people. Go ahead. So, I mean, it's, you know, we, we just passed the, the year that marked the 40th year since he won the election. And there was a, coming into that year, there was a documentary and there was a lot of coverage. And, and I've always felt like I was kind of uniquely on the cusp because I was 11 years old when he was running. I turned 12 the day after he was elected mayor in 1983. But I was from a political family and um, was involved 
in the in the politics and actually met him when I was like six years old and had been to a bunch of his stuff. So every I always felt like everybody older than every Chicagoan older than me inherently knows how impactful he was. And every Chicagoan younger than me kind of always had to be educated. And as we've grown, as we've grown, my oldest daughter is part of, uh, the, is a millennial. My youngest daughter is a, genera- a generation Z. So there's always been folks who had to be educated. And th- there's really two aspects to it. There's the, the, the cultural aspect, the political and cultural aspect where he broke through, you know, 20 years after the civil rights uh, bill, 20 years after the voting rights bill in the first major city and, and, and a lot of folks, younger folks can relate to that if you talk a little bit about Obama in 2008, because that's analogous in, in, in many ways. Um, but there was the, the political governance that occurred during his tenure and how um, there really was, and it's so funny because this is now Brandon Johnson's tagline, there really was a fight for the soul of Chicago during those four years. And, and anybody who's you know, one or two years younger than me and younger probably wasn't at all aware of that. And even people my age would say don't pay a lot of attention to politics. But everybody older remembers how intense and passionate and uh, that fight for Chicago soul was. And there, people always talk about politicians and governance in terms of the policies that they created. But that political, that fight for the political and cultural soul of Chicago. Was, was so much more important than the policies themselves. There are a ton of policies, and frankly, I've always been of perspective, his policies, actually, his more enduring policies were kind of more from the late-front liberal prosecutorial left side of things in terms of, like, the ethics reform, the lobbying reform, FOIA reform, than they were necessarily from equity and, and transforming um, inequality in the city. But all that occurred. But I think what people... Um, what people miss or try to feel from the younger generation, try to understand in terms of why there's so much passion from the older generation is, is that, is that fight that, that five-year fight that occurred for the soul of the city. So that's how I want to set it up for you. All right. Uh, Jackie, um, I'm going to add to that uh, in my humble opinion, why uh, I always say that Harold Washington is the greatest mayor the city of Chicago ever had uh, is that Harold Washington was the first mayor uh, and man, in many ways, the only mayor who directly confronted the racism, and this is me speaking, if you disagree, feel free to speak out, uh, who directly confronted the racism that existed in the city from the moment in the early parts of the 20th century and black people started moving here in great number. The segregation in this city, uh, the uh, prejudice in this city, the discrimination in this city, uh, police brutality in this city, the Harold Washington defied it. And the notion that somehow or other black people were not equipped uh, to leave the city, which was very prevalent in the mindset of Chicago politicians. They wouldn't even let Wilson Frost, Jackie Grimshaw, they wouldn't even let Wilson Frost run the city uh, after Old Man Daly died and he was next in line. That was in 1976, seven years before Harold Washington was elected mayor. That was the mindset of Chicago. Oh, yeah, black people, like, they could play for the Bulls uh, and maybe they could play for the White Sox and the Bears, but they can't sit on the fifth floor. They don't have what it takes to run this city. You need a white person to run this city. Harold Washington directly confronted that. Your thoughts on all that, Jackie Grimshaw? Well, um, Ben, I'm not going to disagree with you on any of that, but I think it it was more. Uh, The more part of it was the, the, the machine part 
of the city of Chicago uh, political establishment. You know, Harold used to all, always say that he was uh, in the machine, but not of the machine, meaning that if you wanted to do anything in politics or in government in the city, you had to be uh, in the political party of Richard J. Daley. So, you know, he started his career as a state's attorney. Um, but, you know, he was a state's attorney that was, uh, no, actually he started as a, what do you call it, uh, adjustment. Um, Corporation council. No, workman's comp thing. You know, it was one of those administrative things, administrative judges thing. But then he ended up in the, uh, in the uh, state's, uh, state's attorney's office. But, you know, the, the thing that got him or that formed his attitude came from his father. His father was a precinct captain for uh, the machine. Uh, and this was even before the daily machine. He could have called it in the Dawson machine. But, um, you know, it was still a machine that was controlling politics in the city. And he, his father was in the Third Ward. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, um, uh, a precinct captain there, and the committeeman, a guy by the name of, of Winbush, uh, promised him that when the next election came, he would be the candidate for alderman. Um, but what Winbush did was not to slate Roy Washington, but to slate Archibald Carey. And um, Harold felt wounded, deeply wounded. He was a kid now. This is his father who was disrespected. He felt wounded by that disrespect and never really embraced the machine. Although he was of the machine, I first met him uh, as a precinct captain for Ralph Metcalf. Uh, and he stayed that way until the very incident you mentioned. Uh, and that was... Uh, well, actually, he, he broke a little bit earlier than that when Ralph, Ralph Metcalf left the machine. But the thing that got him uh, visibly uh, promoting the, the, the getting to the anti-racism, uh, getting to equity is the Wilson Frost thing, uh, the Wilson Frost mistreatment. But, you know, he, he knew he was in, uh, in the tank with the tiger, uh, being the political machine of Chicago. Uh, but he also knew how to live with that with that threat, and so you know he 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 uh, uh, was able to advance his career, and actually quite luckily of how he got to to get out of uh, to, uh, out of the city of Chicago and into Springfield was because the political machine couldn't draw a map after the the nineteen sixty census. And um, so it was a, what they call the bed sheet ballot, where every single legislator in the, in the state of Illinois was on one ballot. And, you know, he had been enough of a precinct captain and an organizer that people knew him and he got elected. And then when they finally got to districts, you know, he was easily reelected and reelected and reelected and reelected. Right, so. Uh, so Jackie Grimshaw was on the South Side, uh, and her the, the 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 wards she generally was she worked were South Side wards that uh, overlapped with Harold Washington. Helen, you're on the North Side, you're in Uptown. How did you find your way to Harold Washington? How did you meet? Uh, and when were you aware that the the issues he was articulating also resounded in your your part of the woods? 
So I came to Chicago in and Uptown, uh, started working in Uptown in 1972. And um, I came to be part, I came here as part of a group called the Intercommunal Survival Committee. And we were a cadre of white people working under the direction of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. Um, well, under the direction of the Black Panther Party, specifically organized white people to join the Black-led struggle for liberation. That's what we said. That's what we tried to do. And that's important because to this conversation because after Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were killed in their apartment in 1969 uh, as a result of police officers that were sent there by Edward Hanrahan, who's the state's attorney, and with the support of the FBI who had used their informant to get a map of the apartment, which they handed over to Hanrahan who handed over to the police and then they came and stormed the apartment, shot it up, and killed Fred as he was in his sleep, and um, and shot through the door entrance before they to get in. Uh, when they shot through the door, they killed Mark Clark, who was on the other side. So, uh, and uh, and several other Panthers who were there were um, were were seriously injured. Uh, in the response to that, actually, was to have them all arrested initially by the city city government was to have them all arrested. And there were a series of different things that went on after that. In 1972, uh, Harold and Richard Newhouse, who was, they were both state representatives, wrote a letter basically condemning what had happened. And that's the first time, I have actually a copy of the letter. Um, and that's the first time that uh, I became aware of him. Wow, well, I mean, that's some ancient history. Richard Newhouse, that's a name. Uh the show a lot. He's a former state senator from Hyde Park. I'm sure Jackie Grimshaw knew him very well. Uh, so Jackie, just think so, about so wait, wait, wait. So the point about that I just want to say is that um, Harold had independent tendencies, I think, that became apparent after the, the issues that Metcalf had around the police with Daly, which was in the late 60s, I think. But I, everything, I mean, so that was bubbling over earlier. Um to the point where Jackie mentioned, which was the clear disrespect uh, that occurred with the uh, Wilson Frost incident after Daly died. But that yeah, was Daly died. And Wilson Frost should have been the mayor uh, by virtue of his position in the city council. And just the thought of Wilson Frost being the mayor just threw uh, Chicago's powers of bees in such a tizzy that they had to rewrite the rules uh, and let Bolandic be the mayor. I mean, an unbelievable, blatant exhibit of racial. It was so obvious, even I got it, okay? So uh, just imagine if just ordinary, regular black Chicagoans saw it real hard. All right, Jackie Grimshaw, think about this. Think about what Helen just said. Her roots are with the, uh, the radical movement, the Black Panthers. Your roots are more mainstream. Harold Washington bridged the Black Panthers and mainstream Southside political activists who were working within the system in very much a way the Black Panthers were outside the system. How did Harold manage to do that, in your humble opinion? Well, I wouldn't say that we were crazy activists on the South Side. We're in the system. <laughs> we fought the system, too, just differently than the Black Panthers. But, um, yeah, Harold, Harold, I think, um, I always describe him as a people person. Uh, Brendan, uh, in his uh, introduction, was, was talking uh, a part of his introduction talked about um, the, the the young people and and their need to understand Harold, and uh, that the policies that Harold promoted were more progressive liberal party stuff. Well, that's true, 
It was also true that he did a lot of the mainstream stuff too. And the reason is that Harold always listened to people, right? So, you know, the progressives and the liberals had their agenda and they talked to him and yeah, right. Yeah, he heard him. But the, the ministers and, and the social service agencies had their issues and they also talked to him and he heard their issues and he could put it within the, in the perspective of what is good for Chicago. Now, you know, where the idea came from wasn't as important as the idea, right? And, you know, if young people start to understand that, you know, that they have these uh, positions like I hear right now on the national scene. Oh, you know, Biden is too old, right? Well, you know, so what? What ideas are coming out of Biden? Are those ideas making your life better? You know, is will a, a 35-year-old come up with better ideas that make your life better? You know, and, and so the, the thing is that um, what I always try to stress is what I learned actually from Hero, is that um, if you listen to people and if you respond to their needs, then you don't have to worry about the decision you make. But if you get into your own head and you say, well, balance this political thing versus that political thing, this argument versus that argument, you know, it kind of screws you up. But, you know, listen to the people and what is best for the folks. And if you make the decision based on that, then you won't go wrong. All right. Listen to the people. So, Helen, in your humble opinion, what were the people saying in 1982 when Harold Washington announced he was going to run for mayor? What, what was motivating him? in the voices of ordinary Chicagoans? Well, I'll, I'll tell you that what I remember most strikingly is that Harold said, I am going, and I think this is often really misunderstood, the totality of this. He said, "My, I am going to, my, I'm laser focused on addressing institutional racism and institutional corruption, and he, which he also said were tied at the hip. Um, he was, la- I'm laser focused on that, but I understand that it's not just about changing a law. It's about changing how people think about these things. It's an internal internalization of the changes that we need to make. And that's, that, that's going to take some time. That may take 20 years. It's not like some people interpret that he was saying, wait 20 years to have a change. He was saying, this is any change that is worthwhile and we need. And these two are priorities because they direct and, and affect everything else. Um, is going to take us some time to accomplish our end goal, but we're going to do it, and we're going to do it in a way every day by making sure that this city is fair to everyone. And he was very clear about that. And hearing what he did, allowed the way he did, allowed him to understand not only the experience he had in his own district and ward and district, as the third ward was in the first congressional district, and he had spent three years as the congressman there uh, before he became mayor. Um, so he had a, he was in constant touch with people. He was in constant, had weekly political education classes that not only people from the district, but people from around the city. I went to it every Sunday, uh, came to those meetings, um, hundreds of people. And uh, he was very engaged in the very needs that people had, the ways in which they were disre- disrespected, but also in, in a very material way. The way, I mean, one of the early things that I remember that he did in, in the state legislature was he um, went after usurious uh, uh, interest rates that the, um, that the uh, what do you call them, the cash stations where you, I'm not the cash, the um, currency exchanges. Yeah, the currency exchanges 
uh, used against people, especially in the black community. Uh, that was, he was, he understood the day-to-day struggle that people had to survive. He understood that everyone didn't have the same one, but he understood in general what that meant and how that really had to be addressed. And it had to be addressed from the perspective of those people who had really been cut out of it consistently and were affected by racism, by anti-Semitism, by whatever it was. And he talked about all of that. And he talked about it across the board because as a result of the way in which he operated, he had a very large umbrella. And that was really why he was able to get elected, I think, in the first place. Uh, by the way, I, how come I never got invited to those Sunday things? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was it like, uh, people? Did you use that <laughs> Uh, no. invite only, Ben. <laughs> yeah, this is you got to know someone town. I was never invited to any Sunday uh, meeting with Harold Washington. No, 50, years later, 50 years later, you're still not part of the cool crowd. Man. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's for sure, man. Uh, you know, there's there's one story from the 1982 election that I tell, I told both my daughters, I tell younger folks, younger activists um, about Harold. And, and it's, it's a story I got from three people who are all gone now, honestly. Uh, Curly Cohen, George Atkins, and Mark Zalkin. Um, and they were all in various ways working parts of the Southwest side. There was, in the primary, what I'll call the primary, there was a, a, a town hall slash debate in, Bridge, in Bridgeport in, in 1982, in the fall of 1982, winter of 82-83. Jane Byrne, of course, doesn't show up. Because this is Daly's home base. Harold Washington does. And his staffers are giving him all these talking points about attacking the machine and, and this policy and that policy. And Harold takes those talking points and rips them up. And he goes and he says, listen, you know what? Me and Rich, I know where I'm at. I know I'm in Rich Daly's home base. But me and him, we have a lot in common. You know, we're political families. We care. We, 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 you know, our fathers were in politics. We were, we were precincts. We both did some work at the state's attorney's office. There's really only one difference between us. He's a lot younger, which means he's going to have another chance in the future. Now's our chance. And the whole, and so you have this whole racist group of white folks in Bridgeport who just start laughing and then he has them eating out of, the, uh, out of his hands. Now, none of them may have gone to vote for him, but that's a lot less intensity. They're a lot less likely to gin up all their cousins and aunts to go vote because they no longer hate him. And, that, and that's who he was. All right, let's get to this. Uh, we'll talk, I'll ask Jackie and then uh, Helen, you weigh in because you're the man. So when, whenever I talk to uh, 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 the youngsters uh, about Harold Washington and when they can put up with me talking about him uh, long enough to listen, um, I say it's really unfair to compare Harold Washington to, to any other politician in the city of Chicago. Uh, and this gets to what Brendan was talking about, that it's like comparing basketball players to Michael Jordan. There's greatness, and then there's everyone else. And that's not an insult to everyone else. There's just greatness. And this is me speaking for myself. Jackie, you're next. Harold had greatness. He had an ability. I don't know where he got it from, but it's just like to communicate and just make people feel good. And like I come in for an interview, oh, you're the smartest reporter I've ever seen. And like, <laughs> you know, like make me feel real good about myself. And uh, he could do that just wherever he went. He had that ability he, just to communicate with people. And Brendan's larger point is right. 
white people in the city couldn't bring themselves to really vote for him. All the stuff he did, they still wouldn't vote for him in 87, Alan Schiller. They still wouldn't vote for him. But fewer of them turned out, Pat, with hatred, like in 83. So that was sort of an accomplishment. Jackie, talk a little bit. And then, Helen, you follow up about the personal greatness of Harold Washington. Oh, man. That is as expansive as Harold's intellect, the answer to that question. And Harold had an intellect, let me tell you. Um, no, Harold, you know, he, he was a human, right? And he saw other people as human and he cared about people, you know, those who hated them as well as those who loved them, you know, and that's where his fairness comes from. You know, he was going to be fair to everybody. He was not going to do like some of the black machine guys wanted him to take all the spoils and give it to the black community and freeze out the, the white community. And that's just not the way Harold was built. Um, so I think that's that's one part of it. The other is that I think uh, when you grow up and experience deprivation and you experience racism and discrimination and so forth, you know, it has an impact on you. It makes you feel in a way that uh, it, things are unfair. And, and that's such a poor word to describe, actually, the feeling. But... You know, if you've been discriminated in any way, um, you know, whether or not as anti-Semitism or anti-Muslim uh, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, black or, or Asian or whatever, you know, that it, it has a sting that goes with you, right? And so, you know, if you are a human, you don't want other people to feel that sting, right? Um, and so I think that was part of, who Harold was, um, and uh, I think you know on a on a on a personal side, but I think on an intellectual side, uh, he understood that from uh, discrimination, from inequities, you don't breed unity, you don't breed um, you know increased quality of life and so forth. That you really breed deprivation, and, and people may not recognize they're deprived, but you know when you are hating somebody, you are deprived. Uh, you're depriving yourself. And so I think, you know, from an intellectual point of view, he understood that, um, you know, being uh, uh, anti, being racist, being discriminatory is is not a helpful, pl- help, helpful place to be. Um, so I, you know, I think all of those things contributed both on the emotional side as well as the intellectual side that made him such an empathetic person. Hello? Yeah, no, I'd agree. I, I think that um, I think that he was very uh, empathetic is a really good term, but I think he was also he never. While what I agree completely with what Jackie said about how he viewed people and how he viewed the world, he was a really good example of somebody who wanted to live the world he wanted to see, and um, but he never he never lost sight of the level of racism that existed and the impact it was having on the people around him. And I remember one of the most actually impactful meetings that I went to during that campaign was a a press conference he had about education at Jones High School um, in the primary. And he said, when I am, in essence, he said, the day I'm elected, the day after I'm elected, every black child in this this city is going to raise their, their grades are going to go up. 
His point being that there was that, that that was going to change the way they looked at themselves. It was going to change the way in which they thought it was possible for the world to greet them and for them to interact in the world. And he was very clear about that. Um, but he was also, uh, in some ways, he was like the cattle catcher on a train. He he was going to express and reflect this vision of unity and breath, but he was not going to give up uh, the fight against racism. And I, the last, you know, I, I saw the last meeting I had with him was actually on the city council floor. But before that, the last meeting before that, um, there had something that occurred. I'm not going to get into all the details, but I had, uh, well, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of meetings, but um, the real point I want to make is that one of the meetings after the 87 election, after I was elected and I was meeting with him, it, we had, he was reflecting and, um, and he said he was really discouraged. He was really discouraged that Verdoliak, who had, you know, had been part of the opposition for those who don't know the history. Um, and he and Ed Burke had organized 29 aldermen to basically stop to make sure that Harold would be a one-term mayor, which they didn't succeed at. And then when Harold won outright in the primary uh, for, to, for re-election, uh, Rodoliak ran independently against him and got 40% of the vote. And Harold just, that hurt his heart. Um, and I think that it actually hurt his heart physically as well as emotionally. Um, so he, 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 he held that, but he held it in protection so that it would, he, it, he was moving, he was determined that the world was going to be a better place. Uh, for people who are affected by the level of racism we had as changes were being made um, in every way possible that, that he could impact. Wow, that was, uh, I'm glad you said that, Helen. A lot of people cover up. Uh, and uh, Jackie, um, I'd love to bring you, bring you in. That's because what Helen said is so true. Harold was discouraged by the 1987 re-election. He was re-elected, ladies and gentlemen. But let me tell you something. He was the fairest mayor the city of Chicago ever had. Uh, he met black demands for equality without being uh, prejudiced against white uh, areas. He made sure that in that general obligation bond that the white neighborhoods got their sewers repaired and their sidewalks repaired just like the black ones did. It's the exact opposite of the TIF program in the city of Chicago that followed. Sorry, Helen, I had to go there. Yeah. And... Uh, it's true. It, it's true. Uh, and so despite that, white people still voted against him, Jackie Grimshaw. And I know it hurt him because I did an interview with him. I didn't have the personal connection you did, Helen, but I remember the interview. He goes, what do I got to do? And uh, what do I have to do? And I was like, you're asking me? <laughs> These people are crazy. Uh, so, Jackie in many ways, do you see, like, was Harold Washington's time as mayor a success, even though he did not get more than whatever it was, in the, like, I don't know, 20, 30 percent of that of white votes in the city of Chicago, even the fairest mayor of all time, still white people couldn't bring themselves to vote for him. Um, would you still say those four and a half years or five years were successful? Yes. Why do you say that? Well, uh, one is that um, that 30% was less than the 35% that had voted against them in the first election. So that was, that was progress. 
But more than that is that I, I think what he said about the children, uh, that it did make a difference for children, that they saw that the possibilities were there. Uh, and it also gave us our first black president. You know, Barack came here because of the success of Harold. Um, and he probably would have stayed on the East Coast if not for Harold. Uh, and he studied Harold's campaign and followed, tried to follow Harold's footsteps. Um, I don't think he came out here to be president, but he wanted to, to be um, a decision maker, a, a policy decision maker. So, you know, so I think it was successful in that way. I think it was also successful in the way that, you know, which I will never forget when Richard N. Daly became mayor and um, he was talking about all the wonderful things he did. And one of the things he claimed was that he had brought more women into City Hall than ever before, which was a blatant lie. You know, Harold had done it twice as much, had brought twice as many women in as he did and did it first, right? And so Daly did a lot of his policies trying to be a copycat of Harold, but not quite getting there. He he talked copycat, but he was not the copycat. Um, and so he wouldn't have done that if he hadn't respected the job that that Harold, uh, Harold uh, did as mayor. So, you know, like uh, I think the other thing, you know, is Harold's policies, you know, the general obligation bonds and how they were used. I mean, kind of move this whole menu money thing came, you know, kind of flowing down after Harold. Uh, but, you know, the, the mayor succeeding Harold, you know, tried to imitate him in that way. The other thing in terms of the budget, you know, we had real budget hearings. I mean, we went out to the community. He would drag us all around the city of Chicago listening to people and what they wanted to see in the budget. And then we'd have to go back to City Hall and try and fit all of that stuff in the limited amount of money we had. But it came from uh, from the people. And, you know, other folks, you know, did this copycat. Oh, yeah, we go. We go. I remember daily having his, his community hearings, which was pretty much of a sham. But, you know, he did go out there. He did pretend to listen, et cetera. You know, and so it was like all of the, the imitating of Harold or trying to imitate Harold that the, the success of mayors did. I think also is an indication that Harold was successful. And I think probably the most successful thing is going back to what Helen said earlier, and that was an education. You know, Harold felt that parents needed to be more involved in their kids' education. And the way it's turned out was not his vision, but at least, you know, there was there was some amount of inclusion of parents and children's education in a positive way, not like these idiots uh, who are the MAGA people <laughs> are uh, getting involved in their children's education. But uh, but anyway, I, I digress. I don't get on the ball. Well, I think that actually I think it's really important. And the way I would put it is that Harold raised the bar on a series of issues that daily embraced because he knew that they really did respond to the needs that people had. He didn't um, have the same vision that Harold did um, and understanding of how that affected many people in the city. But he knew he had to deal with it. So there was school reform. They continue, he continued with the minority contracting. Um, the uh, Instead of doing, Harold was really just, he had, there was a whole new proposal in the budget we were looking at when he died uh, that got kicked, taken out. 
uh, that expanded the anti-violence work the community groups were doing. He relied a huge amount um, and really went out to rely on people uh, throughout the city who were organizing to do their programs with the city and expanded the use of delegate agencies from something like about 50 that Byrne had used to hundreds, hundreds, several hundreds um, of organizations throughout the city on the basis that they would be doing models, testing models in health and education and in, in, um, uh, in all sorts of different ways that affected people's uh, daily life and struggle to survive to see what worked and to see where government should interact with it, city government should interact with it. So he did all of these things in a way that was very effective and, and, and the infrastructure work that he did. So uh, in a way that they no one could turn their back on it. They might have implemented it differently than he did and not as effectively, I would argue, because they didn't understand it or they had a different view of it, but they knew the demand for school reform was there. The demand to make sure that hiring and, and contracting was fair. The demand to make sure that we were addressing community policing, although they, they did a form that was not the most effective in the world, was critical. All of these things were a bar that he set that it, to this day has not been able to be ignored. Yeah, I, I just really want to co-sign what both Jackie and Helen just said. People forget we think about Daly and we think about his last three terms, and that's really when he animated neoliberalism, sold the parking meter, sold the Skyway, created it with the, with the affidavit requirement. But those first two and a half terms were in many ways an extension of Harold Washington and, and Eugene Sawyer because the machine was suffering for PTSD from those losses in 83 and 87. And we forget that, that actually housing resources were, were increased, healthcare resources were increased. It, OPS actually had some of its best, actually had some of its highest percentages of, and there's only three or four percent of sustained findings in the mid 90s. It wasn't until, frankly, Lori Lightfoot came along in 2001 that they reverted back to their 1980 uh, patterns, and then IPRA was created. There, that those first two and a half terms of daily, um, if you go back and look, were in many ways an extension of Harold Washington because of the bar he set. And I think that's important to remember. I know we're not talking about daily, talking about here, but that's okay. that is uh, So, Jackie, just so you know, this that's classic Brendan Scheller. What he just said. I've had this conversation with Brendan a million times. I'm going to refrain from pushing back uh, because I always let my guests get the last word. I uh, don't agree with him. Uh, I, I, I being way too generous to Mayor Richard M. Daly in my home. No, no. What I said, Ben, and Brendan wasn't listening is that he tried to copy Harold, but he never quite got there. Okay. He went through the motions of trying to be like Harold, but never got there. Yeah. He, uh, he, heard, he heard the topics. Yes. He didn't yeah. have the same content. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Brendan, you want to follow up with anything before I move oh, on? Wait, wait, wait. I just want to say one thing, because Brendan mentions housing, and this is really important, I think, especially now. Under Byrne, the money that we got from federal, federal folks, I mean, the... The money that we had to spend, the public money we had to spend, some of it was local, some was federal, twice it was spent two to one city city available dollars, public dollars to developer dollars. When Harold became, or three to one, when Harold became mayor, by the time I was in city council, it was the city was getting developers to, it was three, the ratio was three to one, the developers spending three times what we were putting into uh, public, from public dollars. He understood that these problems that we had, that now they keep saying we just need to throw more money at it and somebody else, we have to, to do, we have to find a way to do it. He was determined 
to take advantage of everything that existed to um, and then to use that as a vehicle to get other involvement and force the private sector to be engaged and involved and to help solve those problems. And we haven't seen that since he left, I don't think. Well, he, yeah, and that gets to a point uh, that's um, about Harold. Uh, for a guy who was never part of city government, think about this. Harold Washington was a congressman. Uh, he was a state senator and he was a state rep. Uh, and as Jackie was pointing out, yes, early on in his career, uh, he uh, had worked uh, in city government, but, but that was lower level. His father, yes, was in city government, but lower level. He kind of came into office and he, it's like he knew what to do. I know you're all bad. What's the big deal? No, I mean, I'm looking at Brandon, John Brandon Johnson. They're, they're struggling. Okay. They're figuring stuff out. Jackie's laughing. <laughs> yeah. I can say anything on that, but you know, what I'm saying is true, Jackie and Lori Lightfoot struggle. It's like, how the hell did Harold know what to do? He came in. Well, you know, uh, one of the things, Ben, you may not know this, but before, Harold said yes to running for mayor. He uh, interviewed, um, well, he met with, we'll just interview, black mayors that had gone before him. So Dutch Morial, um, Richard Hatcher, um, guy in Cleveland, I can't remember his name. Stokes, Carl Stokes. Yeah, right. So he talked to all these, these mayors about what happened. And he talked to those who were successful and those who lost. Right. So he talked to both sides. And so what was the difference in your success? Then I can't remember the ones you lost, but, you know, that's <laughs> history and my bad brain, but a bad memory. But um, he 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 tried to discern if he ran for mayor, how was he going to be successful? Because he didn't want to run for mayor and lose. Right. Because uh, we had already done that. <laughs> we did that in, in 76. But um, and, and so and talking to them was about the election, you know, and that's where he came up with these demands that we have to meet in terms of money and registration and stuff like that. But also in terms of what was needed to put together a government. So he went into the office he, before he won the election. He knew he had already decided on who was going to be his chief of staff. So before we won the election, he had the skeleton of what he wanted to see in terms of government. So, you know, we essentially hit the ground running. I mean, he also had, you know, his spies, so to speak, folks who worked for the city who, who, who shared, <clears throat> shared information. So he had a sense about the but, bad budget situation we were in. We didn't know until we got there exactly how bad it was. So, you know, he went in and he had thought about, you know, who's going to help me get out of this mess? Right. And that's where Sharon came from. So, you know, a lot of his preparation came from that intellectual approach to problem solving. Right. If you don't know, you find somebody who does and you get that information. All right. Here we go. A Harold Washington trivia. Ten trivia points to the guest who can tell me. Jackie Grimshaw alluded to. He said he knew who his chief of staff would be. Who for ten trivia points was Harold Washington's first chief of staff. Anyway. You want me to tell you or do I have to be quiet? No. Oh, you know. Okay. <laughs> this is really testing your mental acuity. Jackie Grimshaw, go. Uh, Bill Ware. Yes. Excellent. And Helen Schiller for follow-up question. What high school did Bill Ware graduate from? 
<laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> this is the stuff only I know, Jackie Grimshaw. Hirsch High School. Look it up on the south side of Chicago. Um, that was a good answer. Uh, Brendan, I'm going to, before I uh, do some concluding questions, I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, You were to de- defend the point of view we're making about uh, uh, Daily and Harold and anything else you want to say. Go ahead. Let me start with the lawyerly discrepancy that if there's any uh, conflict or dispute between anything I and Jackie say or anything I and Helen say, they're absolutely right and I'm absolutely wrong. <laughs> That's good. The man knows how to handle a question. Uh, um, I always give all people, friends and enemies, uh, more benefit of the doubt. Um, I, but I wasn't saying anything differently, actually. I, I was just trying to – I was – just trying to co-sign what they were saying about how Harold set a bar and and in many ways, um, even though people tried and didn't get there in many ways, I think his, um, his term was, uh, his term continued far beyond his death was uh, was co-signing. Fair enough. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the opposition that Harold faced. Uh, I'll summarize it and then uh, go to Helen and Jackie for uh, thoughts and to further elaborate. So the first opposition he faced was in uh, the election. In those days, uh, we had a system, we ran a partisan campaign. So you ran as a Democrat versus a Republican. And there was a primary, and he was victorious in the primary, kind of running under the radar. Uh, there were three candidates in the race, Daly and Byrne, Mayor Byrne and uh, Richie Daly, the state's attorney. They split the white vote. Harold got in because he got roughly 80% of the black vote. Uh, and then he faced he got 90%. Well, no, in the first round, I'm oh, talking okay. about, uh, he got got close to 99% by my count. Uh, in the next round, he ran up against a Republican named Bernie Epton, who was a, a legitimate moderate Republican. They had, those creatures actually existed in those days. It was Hyde Park, uh, and um, he he went MAGA. It, there, there was no MAGA, but he went MAGA in that election. He went hardcore because he fell in love with the cheering white people who were chanting his name, uh, and it turned into a really racially charged election opposition. Harold eked it out. He eked out a victory, Helen Schiller, by virtue of 99% of the black vote. About to eke it out. He got 99%. He still barely won. And then he gets into office and all these white people rally around Burke and Verdolag to their everlasting shame. Yeah, you, Richard Mel, and opposed him every step of the way to an attempt to sabotage the city so that white people and enough black people would say, okay, this thing with a black mayor will never work. We just got to give it back to the white people. That was their strategy, ladies and gentlemen. That's my uh, take on it. Um, what does that say about Chicago, Helen Schiller, that it was so difficult for the city of Chicago to vote for a Democrat, Harold Washington, over a Republican, Bernie Epton in 1983? And what was so difficult about everybody, corporate Chicago, editorial Chicago, Civic Chicago to say to Eddie Berdolak and Eddie Burke, sit down and be a good sport. What is it about this freaking city? Go ahead, Helen. Well, I'm, I don't think it's just the city, but um, having said that, I mean, I think that that uh, I think that Harold was right, and the most overriding question, if we really want to be able to create a city that serves everyone is addressing institutional racism and institutional corruption. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to make some people unhappy because they're going to have to give up their positions of privilege and they're not going to want to, and they're going to respond and react. And that's the process we saw. We saw, we've seen it 
And then out of, and we saw it first in Chicago. And now after that, then we've seen it more and more federally. We certainly saw it when Barack Obama was elected president. Uh, we had this, you know, just as Rodoliak and Burke said, he, we're going to make him a one-term mayor. We're going to deny everything we can to him. Um, that's what Mitch McConnell said to uh, Barack Obama. We're going to make sure you don't get anything and we're going to make you a one-term president. It all stems from the same place. And it just represents the path that we have continues to be very, continues to be one we have to walk down if we really want this path um, of addressing institutional racism and corruption. And you can't separate them. Um, we need to be able to, it's a, it's a way in which a system is set up. It creates these, um, creates ways in which it's, it, the barriers um, that, uh, that, that make it easier for people who've had that power or their representatives for a long time and harder for people who say, we've got to do something a little bit differently. This is not working. And, um, and I think that that's a dynamic. And uh, now we're in a situation where with the social media and with technology developing where it's even harder and harder, the noise is so great that some, it's harder and harder to get at the truth of the matter. Um, and I think that we really have to find a way to focus on that and to make sure the conversations are there and that people see what they have in common and are able to be able to move on that. But we, that's the dynamic we're in. It's easy to confuse people when they're told over and over again that they're not getting what they deserve. They should be angry. And that's because someone else is taking it away from them. Jackie. Remember, Ben, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said the racism here in Chicago yeah. was worse than he had seen in the South. Yep. You know, so that's saying a lot when you think about the South and and those dogs uh, going after people and water hoses and all the rest of that, which you know takes some real thick hatred to sick dogs on people. Uh, and you know, he said Chicago was worse. So I leave it there. Yeah. You know, Helen's absolutely right. You know, there's not much you can say. This is a a city. I mean, some of the things. Yeah, I was. Yeah, most of the time I was running the running the campaign, and I didn't get to do a lot of visits and stops and monitoring what Harold was doing on the outside. But I do remember I was uh, for some reason I heard him on a radio show, or maybe it was after the fact. I heard this radio show when some guy called in and wanted to know about the vines in City Hall, and Harold didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And he was, of course, saying that Hero got elected. We wouldn't have elevators. We'd have vines, like in the jungle, with Tarzan uh, flying around. You know, and so, you know, it's that kind of stuff, you know, like you, you as Hero said with his, his focus, that you can't change people's hearts. All you can do is change the law to make it difficult to have institutional racism. But, um, you know, people are where they are, right? We have taught, or at least people have taught their children to be racist, and so it becomes ingrained. And doing nice things uh, for folks, uh, if you're different color, it doesn't matter. You know, you meet their needs, it doesn't matter. Brendan, I'll put that question to you. Uh, you were you born and raised in Chicago. When Harold was elected, you were in uh, with the equivalent of junior high or middle school, whatever they call it. And uh, uh, it was the response to Harold was a shock to me because I'm not from Chicago and I couldn't believe <laughs> I'm like, what? These, these white people are crazy. 
uh, did you have a different response? In other words, oh, well, this, this is just the way white people are. Is I'm used to this. I've seen this my whole life. So what's your reaction to the, the hatred that uh, Harold? Yeah, there's two reactions. So personally, I mean, I, I grew up in Uptown when Uptown was really racially divided, but it was also racially mixed, right? I saw my father and, and, and George on the Northwest side during the 83 campaign and, and how they reacted. I saw clearly on the Southwest side and how he was reacting to. So I had a lot of personal experience. Um, and, 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 you know, I was, I was raised by a bunch of folks who decided to put me around a bunch of poor white racists, what they were trying to organize. Um, so I wasn't surprised, but I also have, having grown up in the city and been aware of everything going on here for the last 50 years, understand the Chicago paradox that I think we all understand. You know, up there was a point in time where 80% of all of all black U.S. senators, this, this obviously changed in the last few years, came from Illinois <laughs> in, the, in the history since Reconstruction, right? The Chicago did bring us the first... Um, the first uh, uh, black uh, mayor of, a, of one of the four big major cities. Um, we in, and and over the last forty years, um, Chicago really had, did become um, the epicenter of of political equity thinking, and it did ultimately produce the only black president. Um, and 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 we had this conversation um, a, a few shows ago. But Chicago is right behind the DMV in terms of metropolitan areas um, with the number of wealthy black people um, in the country. You know, it's ahead of New York and ahead of Atlanta. People don't realize that. Um, and it's number one in terms of Latino wealth of all metropolitan areas, ahead of any metropolitan area in Florida, in Texas, in New York, in California. And there's a reason for all of that. And, and so... The, the flip side of the segregation and racism in Chicago were the deeply rooted um, communities and authentic communities and the political resistance that occurred to that. And out of that cauldron, has Chicago has been at the vanguard. There's a reason Chicago created Fred Hampton and created Harold Washington and created Barack Obama um, when he came here. Um, Chicago has been at the vanguard of, of fighting that deeply rooted um, racism with some really um, gritty um, uh, politics and organizing. And that's why you now have people like Kennedy Bartley and Emma Ty and Damon Williams um, and, uh, and, and Jennifer Pagan and, and Christian Cohn and all, and Amika Tanjahe and the Black Roots Alliance and, and Eat and Rich Wallace and all of these folks. And this the reason why we charge genocide started here in 2012 and produced more than 300 young black activists. The reason why Brandon Johnson, regardless of how everybody on this panel thinks he's doing or not doing, was elected um, again. And, and the, the, so Chicago is the paradox. It has that history of racism and that history of segregation. But as, as a result of that, it also has been at the vanguard and forefront of resistance and political resistance. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to resist as well. I'm going to push back on uh, Harold and uh, uh, for uh, President Obama. Big difference. Uh, Harold Washington uh, stayed in Chicago and carried the fight to Chicago. And I think I'm uh, not uh, Jackie Grimshaw privy 
to the inner thinkings of Barack Obama, but I kind of think that at some point, probably after he lost to Bobby Rush, he said to himself, I got to get out of this town. (laughs) (laughs) And he did that very well. Every now and then he drops in, but (laughs) see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. And uh, I can't blame him from having come to that conclusion. yeah. Now, I gave, uh, losing to Bobby gave him fortitude, did not give him the will to, the, 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 uh, uh, an interest in fleeing. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll close with a little advice, all three of you. Uh, what advice what le- you would give uh, to Mayor Johnson uh, based on your knowledge of Harold Washington and the Harold Washington legacy? Uh, and we'll start with Brendan, and then we'll go to Jackie, and then Helen closes down the show. So, Brendan. Go ahead. Yeah, I think my advice um, would be to um, Brandon, for what I've seen and known during the campaign, is he has a real vision of of love and progress, and he needs his administration to animate that. Um, You know, when I look at their reaction to the migrant issue, that was an uh, opportunity to say we have an opportunity and to express a big vision of love and how you repopulate the city and, 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 and explain how this is actually an economic opportunity. Instead, frankly, what I've seen is a lot of the reactionary um, actions by the administration. And I think what, um, what I remember as a little kid, as a kid, as a teenager, as a preteen and teenager is um, Mayor Washington was able to animate a vision of, of, not only just equality and fairness, but of love and understanding that there's ways we can creatively get to where all of us um, are living a better life. And and Brandon had some of that in his in his campaign, and I think he needs more of that as he's running his administration. All right, uh, Jackie. You know the 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 city has a, a bunch of problems, right? Brendan mentioned the migrants, which is which is the biggest problem, but we also, that's causing us to have a fiscal problem. Um, and it also um, calls for the need to have relationships uh, with those folks who can help us out. So relations, positive relationships with the governor, uh, positive relationships with the members of the General Assembly, positive relationships with um, the federal our federal congressional delegation, positive relationships with uh, the president's cabinet and, and with the president. And, and so you, you need to do more than have, a, have great talking points and a great smile. You know, that's work. And I am, and, and, and I want to be very clear, I am not on the inside. I do not know what's going on. But from the outside, it doesn't look like that kind of relationship building is going on. And so... Um, uh, in fact, you know, with the governor, it seems like it's a strained relationship, which is not helpful um, when we we need not only to solve the migrant problems, but a whole host of other problems. Uh, you know that that we're you know the President Biden did all of the cities a great turn with um, getting some funding after COVID, but those funds are running out, and so we're going to have these fiscal holes. You know, like we're seeing right now, the issue I work with all the time, and that's transit. And we're trying to address it and understand we cannot address our whole and our transit funding without the General Assembly. 
right? So, you know, we've been making love to the General Assembly, you know, in order to make sure that we have the relationship that will give us the funding. And so for all of the city's problems, I think you need to have that same kind of relationship. You know, I haven't seen um, Mallorca come to Chicago. Um, uh, the, the vice president has come, but she hasn't come in her role as dealing with the migrant crisis. You know, um, I, I, <clears throat> I haven't seen, you know, the uh, housing secretary come here. I haven't seen, you know, uh, the energy secretary has been here but she's been here for energy programs out of Argonne, not because the city of the city of Chicago. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that, you know, we are not an island unless we start building some bridges and relationships. Uh, we will be an island, unfortunately. That's well put, Jackie. Helen? Yeah, well, I, um, I'm not sure how to add to that. I, I, although I would say this, I like to think of the... Well, first of all, I think that one of the reasons that Harold was so effective was that he really had a very broad umbrella and he had and he built the relationships that Jackie is talking about, not only on the level that she's talking about, but on a grassroots level as well. So that uh, and I think that there's a little bit of perhaps of a dichotomy here that 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 makes that more difficult. Uh, but I think that that's a really that's really important. Um, for a lot of reasons. And what I know for myself is that when you're up against, when you're in a situation where you're challenging the status quo in order to be able to address a problem differently to hopefully get a different response and a better solution, you're going to get pushback. And so in order to be effective, you really do need a sea to swim in. In order to have that sea to swim in, that support, you need to be building that on the one hand, and really asking for it. That was important to me. The day day one, Harold's in office and he goes out to, I, he came to us. He went to every group like us in the city and said, pick something you're going to do to show your, to create a model for us. We picked healthcare. We did the good health place. The point was in Uptown, Curly actually did something else in Bridgeport, the point, or Canaryville. The point was that we want people, we need you involved to help identify the problem, figure out, be creative about solutions. We'll support it. You know, there was funding available. People were able to finally apply for funding and, um, and to see if it works. And if it doesn't work, then we're going to have you do something else or we're going to ask you for another idea. So the point is that he embraced, we need to ask people to help. And then you need to also, though, not be defensive when people come up with different ideas than what you have. And so I think it's a balancing act that's really critical for any elected official or who wants a policymaker who's in a situation where they need, they want to make a change. They need the support to do that, but they also need to have the rapport to be able to not get react to it, but to see what in that is helpful in every single criticism I've ever received there, even no matter how nasty, or how off-putting it's been, I have always been able to find an ounce of truth. And that ounce of truth can become part of making a better solution, whether or not the people who gave it to me meant to give it to me or not. And I think that that's really important. I'll tell you, you are taking the high road on that one, Helen Schiller. And I'll just close by saying, Jackie, let's think about how hard that is. It's really hard. It criticizes you to, to have the discipline not to take it the wrong way 
but to focus on some kind of positive change you could take from it and make yourself a better person. And uh, that's a lot harder. <laughs> it's a lot easier said than done, Helen, but I hear what you're saying. Well, yeah. in every conversation I've ever had with you, and when we talk about something in the past, you say, well, that's a question of leadership or not, more often than not. Well, leadership is not a simple thing, and, and often it's hard to, and, and you can't always exert it just because you think you know what it is because the time may not be right, but all of these things are part of that. So. Yeah. But uh, that's why Harold Washington was Michael Jordan. Yes. <laughs> right. Jeffrey Jordan, there's no question about it. Uh, all right, so I we're going to do a follow-up show. I'm going to commit my guest to this right now. And we know what the follow-up show is this. No ducking and dodging deaths. Uh, so when Harold died in uh, 1987, uh, there was a city council meeting. And the city council, uh, in its infinite wisdom, chose Eugene Sawyer as its successor over Tim Evans. And the fallout of that shaped Chicago politics for the next, well, we're still shaped Chicago politics, but definitely the next 30 years. And so when we reconvene, we are going to talk about the decision, the city council decision. Helen Schiller was there, ladies and gentlemen. She was on the floor. Jackie Grimshaw was there, ladies and gentlemen. She was in the back rooms. And Brendan Schiller was probably running messages back and forth somewhere. And I was watching it aghast. I was like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> oh, Lord, they didn't listen to me then, and they don't listen to me now. So are we all in agreement we're going to come back and do that show? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the weakest agreement I've ever heard. All right. Well, I'm going to have to twist her arms, ladies and gentlemen. Jackie uh, Grimshaw's like, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you for doing this show, Helen Schiller, Brendan Schiller, and uh, Jackie Grimshaw. Jackie, welcome to the Ben Jarofsky Show universe. I'm going to have you back, definitely. Talk politics, all kinds, national politics. I know that's uh, your area of passion of yours, and it's a passion of mine as we try to save this country from fascism. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, and on, a, on behalf of my guests, have a great day, everybody. Mm -hmm.